Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. It was 7.30am on the 2nd of September 1958, nearly breakfast time, so Jim Williamson of number 8 Kelvin Gardens in Southall, Middlesex, put the kettle on for his morning cuppa. 38-year-old Jim then went to have a shave before getting ready for his job as a fitter when he heard the roar of a plane. He thought to himself, If he keeps on flying so low, it'll come through the windows next. But for the reeds at number eight, it did. Number eight became a heap of smoking rubble. Number seven was sliced in two, and number five had gaping holes in the walls. I looked out. It was a battlefield, said Jim later. In that battlefield, seven people were dead and eight injured. Mr. Reed hurried home and collapsed when he found that his children Ronald, aged 11, and Carol, aged 10, were dead, and Michael, 21, was in hospital. Meanwhile, Jim bundled his family, his wife, who was heavily pregnant, and seven children, outside to safety. I reckon we're the lucky Williamsons. I used to say luck never came my way. It did this morning. Word of the Week And for your first word in 2022, I proudly give you... Fror, spelt F-R-O-R-E. Now, if your winter vocabulary feels too modern and accessible, infuse it with this literary archaism. Fror means frozen or frosty. So even if nobody knows what you're talking about, you'll have the cool satisfaction of knowing that this word was used by the likes of John Milton... John Keats and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who all worked the word into their poems. Brian Gibson, then aged 14 from number seven, ran naked to the blazing window. 
hesitated, then went back inside. He returned, carrying his four-year-old nephew, Tommy, and dropped him gently into the arms of rescuers below before he himself jumped out. His father, brother and sister-in-law, who had been married a week, were taken to hospital. But alas, his mother, Eliza Gibbons, aged 45, had perished. At number five, David Yates, aged 19, had just left the house and his mother had gone to work. His father was in bed following a stroke and his little brother, Barry, 13, was also home. When Barry heard the noise and saw the curtains on fire, he jumped out of bed and helped his father escape down a drainpipe before jumping from the bedroom window. At number four, Mrs Gladys Hocken had just returned from collecting the newspapers. She saw the plane coming over the roofs and heard someone yell for help. Two of her sons were already at work and her remaining three were getting up. They managed to escape as the furniture against one wall started to catch fire from the extreme heat outside the building. One eyewitness said that the plane appeared to be on fire before it hit the ground, while another said that the engines didn't seem to be working. It took 15 fire engines and 60 firemen, some from London Airport, to eventually put the blaze out. The Britannia Vickers VC-1 Viking aircraft, registration G-AIJE, had just taken off from London Airport, bound for Tel Aviv in Israel via Nice, Brindisi and Athens, but it crashed minutes after takeoff following engine problems. The aircraft had been overloaded, with two Bristol Proteus turboprop engines as cargo, and it was heard that recent maintenance had been carried out by unqualified engineers. It was also heard that the pilot had been tired and had not received adequate training for the event in which engine power was lost. The aircraft's journey started at 5.54am, but within a few minutes, the flight crew reported engine problems and requested to return to Blackbush Airport, which was cleared by air traffic control. They then descended to 3,000 feet, but were unable to maintain that altitude and continued to descend. The aircraft sent out a mayday call at 6.32am and shortly after crashed into Kelvin Gardens and burst into flames. The crash destroyed two houses, number six and seven, and severely damaged two others. It was said that there had been heavy mist as the plane had skimmed low over the housetops and then hurtled into houses in Kelvin Gardens. A man that lived in Kelvin Gardens and saw the plane crash from his front door said, I went to the front door to get the milk. The plane was so low, I saw the pilot. There was no engines running. The plane took a lamppost right out and missed my front wall by a couple of inches. It took the fence. I just shut the front door and grabbed my three children and ran out. As you can imagine, the explosion was heard by a number of people. One of them was a 39-year-old painter who had been in Dormers Avenue and immediately rushed round to see what had happened. He said when he got there, he saw 14-year-old Brian Gibbons at the first floor window of Elizabeth Gibbons' house, which was on fire. The boy climbed out on the sill and got ready to jump. 
There was a little group of us below. We held our breaths as we hesitated for a minute and then went inside again. He came back to the window with his little nephew in his arms. I shall never forget the scene as long as I live. The boy dropped his nephew into the arms of another man who was waiting below, then jumped and I caught him. After that, Brian and his nephew were rushed to Mount Vernon Hospital in Northwood, Middlesex, where they were treated, their conditions initially being described as fair. There was one man who had been in bed at the time of the crash, and when he was pulled from the rubble, he was still wrapped up in his bedclothes. He was taken unconscious to hospital with face and head injuries. The man that had been in bed was rescued by an ex-detective that had lived in Dormers Avenue. The detective later said that he jumped over his back garden fence to get to the crash and was amazed to find the man still in bed. Two others joined the detective to pull the man from the garden. Seconds later, the place was an inferno. A 41-year-old man that had helped the painter catch the children from a burning building said... It was like a battlefield, but we managed to get five children out of the wreckage. Some of them had jumped from upstairs windows. All were badly burned. I never want to see anything like this again. The older Mrs Gibbons and the baby were dead. The boy was going round in a daze looking for his mother. There were flames and smoke blinding and choking us. The day after the crash, Several theories were put forward. It was thought that the crew might have been putting a fire out in the aircraft or one of its engines. Another theory was that the aircraft's starboard engine had failed and that the pilot, with a heavy freight load, had been unable to control the plane in a direct course from Dunsfold to Blackbush and that that might have meant that the aircraft, with full power on its port engine, had performed a right-hand arc, losing height and passing low over London Airport before crashing into Kelvin Gardens. On Tuesday the 16th of December 1958, it was reported that Scotland Yard had sent the coroner a letter regarding the crash, but it was not clear what it said. Later, during the recovery operation, the WVS brought a mobile canteen to the scene and balanced their urn on a kitchen chair brought from a neighbour's house. 15 appliances from surrounding fire stations and 60 firemen were called to Kelvin Gardens to put out the fire, which took them over two hours. The aircraft engines were found in the front garden of number six and seven Kelvin Gardens, and an initial report into the crash stated that the probable cause was that the aircraft was allowed to lose height and flying speed, with the result that the pilot was no longer able to exercise asymmetric control. It was not known what the exact reason was for the aircraft losing power and then losing height and speed, but a public inquiry found several issues, including serious flaws in the maintenance of the aircraft. The aircraft was overloaded. The pilot had not had adequate rest and the pilot was not adequately trained for handling the aircraft under heavy loads and with one engine, should the other fail. An inquest was held in Ealing by Dr J Gorski, who 
which was adjourned multiple times and concluded on Thursday the 29th of January 1959, in which an open verdict was returned. The inquest included an hour-long playback of messages exchanged between the plane, London Air Traffic Control and Blackbush Airport, which was also listened to by the captain's widow. In the first message, the captain was heard to say, I have engine trouble, and I wish to return to Blackbush. And the last message was a mayday, which ended with, Mayday! Mayday! I'm going into houses! The inquest heard that Captain Peter Major was the only experienced member of crew on the plane, and that with an inexperienced first officer and an inexperienced engineer, he was essentially on his own. The coroner at the Ealing Court asked the Chief Air Traffic Control Officer with the Ministry of Transport and Civil Aviation a number of questions on the matter, and when he asked him whether it was true that the captain was the only experienced member of the crew, he replied... I would not like to express an opinion. When the coroner then asked him... Major, an experienced pilot, was trying to get the plane down with an engine he could not unfeather with an inexperienced radio officer. The chief air traffic control officer said... I would agree that if they were inexperienced, the burden must fall on Major. The coroner then noted that the radar cover assistance for the plane appeared to have been unsatisfactory, stating that... The plane was miles out of its course. And when again the coroner questioned the chief air traffic control officer about the extent of the captain's experience, the captain's wife intervened and said that neither she nor the Airline Pilots Association wished to blame anybody. However, the coroner said... I am here to find out the truth. The jury is not bound to accept my interpretation of the facts. The chief investigating officer at the inquest said that he had found something in the wreckage of the plane that could have a bearing on the cause of the plane crashing, saying... Something I would go no further than say might be a factor. my friends, I bring you a new regular feature. <laughs> Word on the street. The idea for this new feature originated from a question I was asked about Johnny Ball Lane in the centre of Bristol. At the base of Johnny Ball Lane is a striking bronze rider on horseback. The figure, who's possibly a medieval friar, is staring across the road in the direction of St John's Gate, the only survivor of the seven medieval gateways of the old city of Bristol. Johnny Ball Lane was originally called Bartholomew's Lane, and it would appear that the new name Johnny Ball was a corruption of the name John A. Ball, who owned the property adjoining the Franciscan Friary that stood in Lewin's Mead. Johnny Ball Lane was also known as the haunt of 18th century muggers, as mentioned in G. Monroe Smith's A History of the Bristol Royal Infirmary. In his words, he said, Swords were not merely for ornament in those days. A surgeon visiting the infirmary after dark might find the weapon useful. For instance, in 1743, a gentleman walking in Johnny Ball's Lane, adjoining the house, was attacked by a fellow dressed in blue with a blue apron on. 
a little hat and cocked, of a middling stature, who proceeded to rob him. The visiting staff were expected to live in Bristol, not in the neighbouring villages of Clifton or Redland. Otherwise, they would have run the risk on night visits of being stopped by highwaymen. And so, that answers the question I was asked, whether Johnny Ball Lane was named after the famous children's television presenter and father of Zoe Ball. A man that had previously been employed by independent air travel and who used to be a wartime pathfinder said that he had resigned from the company, but that when he had worked there, there had been plenty of cases of pilots becoming sleepy. He said that he resigned because I found the work difficult and rather dangerous. On one occasion when I went to Israel, I was extremely tired. Numerous factors made the whole operation little trying. The inquest heard that after he resigned from independent air travel, he continued to fly for them on a freelance capacity. When he was asked, Why did you go on doing it after you left their service? Were you willing to kill yourself for a few pounds? On reflection, it looks as though that is the case. When the man was asked whether he had volunteered to give evidence at the inquest because he disliked independent air travel, the man replied, No, sir. And when he was cross-examined about his statement, having said that he had found his employment dangerous, he was asked, Did you know that independent air travel have never, during the whole course of operations, had a crash except this one? Yes, I have heard that. When he was questioned about an earlier statement that he had made in which he said that whilst on a trip as a freelance pilot, the plane's captain had gone to sleep. He explained that before the captain went to sleep, that the plane was put into automatic pilot. When he was asked... With you in possession of the controls, is it a perfectly proper operation to fly on the automatic pilots? Yes, under proper supervision. The man did admit... I did not have it on my licence to fly the plane. He was asked whether he had told independent air travel that he was not properly qualified to fly that plane, a DC-4. He said... I did not tell them, but they knew. He also admitted during questioning to have struck a Ministry of Transport and Civil Aviation examiner in 1952, after he failed him in an instrument flying test. However, it was noted that in fairness to him, he did pass the exam a month later with another examiner. Another pilot that gave evidence and who had been detailed to investigate the crash said that he thought that the aircraft had been overweight by about £700 when it had taken off and said that most of the figures given by captains were inaccurate or at the very least subject to guesswork. After giving his evidence, the coroner said... I think you have made some serious allegations today. You are suggesting that every company gives inaccurate figures to pilots. I think you are making some wild statements. As questioning progressed, it was obvious that the coroner was getting more and more annoyed with the pilot. I want you to stop being aggressive and answer my questions. I don't like your manner. And in other evidence being given about the aircraft being overweight, the superintendent of the CID headquarters at London Airport said that the aircraft was very overloaded when it took off. He said that during his investigations with a load sheet that has been put in by Captain Major 
and from an examination of the materials salvaged from the wreckage, which he said amounted to about £950, which was not accounted for in the log. Even a representative from independent air travel who gave evidence stated that after doing some calculations, he found that the Viking aircraft had been overloaded by £950, plus excess petrol that had not shown on the loading sheet. But yet another witness from the Civil Aviation Ministry said that he didn't think that the Viking aircraft had been overloaded enough to cause danger. He said that he found that the aircraft had been £700 over the maximum permissible weight and that any excess must be nibbling at safety margins. But when questioned, he said that clearly there was a dangerous situation at some stage, but there must have been some other more significant factor than excess weight. A marshalling supervisor at London Airport said that he had gone to the aircraft whilst it was nearly finished being loaded and overheard a telephone conversation. He said he heard the engineer telephone Blackbush. He was worried and the way he was putting it over was that he was telling them off at the other end and very angrily. When the telephone conversation was finished, he asked the engineer if everything was fixed and the engineer replied that no, we will not be out tonight or tomorrow morning. But the marshalling supervisor said that later he heard the aircraft engines being run quietly and said that the aircraft then left at about 6am. It also turns out that the engineer that had been assigned by independent air travel to go from Blackbush to London Airport to supervise the loading of the aircraft was not a licensed engineer. Allegations were made to units and gaskets and that aircraft should not have taken off without the certificate of a licensed engineer. You could not have given that certificate. To which the engineer replied no. The engineer stated that the aircraft had taken off from Blackbush Airport in Hampshire and had landed at London Airport to be loaded with engines, after which it was to depart for Israel. He said that he had been a passenger on the plane from Blackbush Airport to London Airport and that when they arrived, they found an oil leak in one of the constant speed units, which he said must have developed between Blackbush and London. He said that they had to wait for the engine to cool down before they could deal with it. It was at this stage of the inquest that a constant speed unit similar to the one that had been in the Viking aircraft was carried in and placed on the coroner's table and the engineer demonstrated how the defect was remedied. At the subsequent inquiry, it was said that the engine had been taken to bits and put back together without the required tests and certification by an authorised person. And when a superintendent of the CID headquarters at London Airport did some investigation, he too found out that the defect was not supervised by a licensed engineer holding an air registration board certificate. And in his investigations, he also found out that Gerald Altina, the aircraft's first officer, had little experience. In fact, he had no training to take the position of first officer on that flight. When the inquest finished on Friday the 30th of January 1959, the jury returned a unanimous open verdict. When the coroner had summed up, he had said that certain disturbing facts 
had been disclosed. For example, there is no doubt that there have been breaches of regulations, breaches of air navigation orders and air navigation regulations. In my opinion, these breaches do point to negligence, but I do not at the moment feel that they reveal any evidence of culpable negligence which concerns you or myself. There has obviously been a considerable amount of laxity in the conduct of this company. I am under the impression, I may be wrong, that there appears to be a certain laxity in discipline. I would hope that the laxity does not exist in other commercial air companies, otherwise it would be a sad reflection on British aviation. In the end, when he finished summing up, the coroner said, I personally, and you're not bound to accept my views, feel that an accident verdict is not enough. I do not think there is sufficient evidence to justify a verdict of manslaughter against some person or persons. Whether you think there is enough evidence to return an open verdict is a matter for you to decide. public inquiry was later held in March 1959, and other evidence came to light, including the fact that a radio engineer had certified a check of the Vikings radio by another man without actually inspecting the work. It was also heard that the captain had been hopelessly wrong about where he was. It was said that the captain had been losing height and had been unable to restart the starboard engine propeller, which he had stopped. Unfortunately, though, the six-month time limit for prosecutions had expired and it was impossible to bring proceedings. When the inquiry referred to the flying hours and duty hours worked at independent air travel, the QC that was holding the inquiry said that this matter had come to the notice of Ministry of Transport and Civil Aviation. It is not a matter which had been overlooked. In fact, it had reached a stage where it was under consideration when this accident had occurred. The report itself was damning. The conduct of the pilot and the whole course of the events, in my opinion, were contributed to by the deliberate policy of the company, which was to keep its aircraft in the air and gainfully employed, regardless of the regulations or of the elementary requirements which should join for the conditions of working of its employees or the maintenance of an aircraft. If someone has COVID-19, they breathe it out in particles. Particles that hang in the air like smoke. In airless rooms, COVID-19 can build up over time. So it's harder to avoid breathing it in. So when you're with others, open windows to disperse these particles. Just 10 minutes every now and again is enough to help. Stop COVID-19 hanging around. Back in the day facts. On the 8th of January 1940, Britain introduces food rationing with bacon, butter and sugar. 
the first items to be affected. On the 9th of January, 1909, Ernest Shackleton, as part of the British Nimrod expedition, reaches a record furthest south latitude of 88 degrees and 23 minutes south. On the 10th of January, 1976, C.W. McCall went to number one in the US singles chart with Convoy, while it made number two in the UK charts. C.W. McCall was in fact an advertising agent, whose real name was Bill Fries. And lastly, on the 11th of January, 1569, the first recorded lottery in England is drawn in St Paul's Church. There had been lotteries for centuries, but this was the first truly national event. It was instigated by Queen Elizabeth I, who wanted money to repair and refurbish England's ships, ports and harbours, so boosting trade and at the same time making the country better fit for war. The lottery was drawn by the Queen herself on the steps of St Paul's Cathedral in London before an enormous and excited crowd. There are no surviving records naming the lucky winner, but one of the great attractions of the lottery was the equivalent to a get-out-of-jail-free card, so that for a week, everybody who brought a ticket was immune from arrest for any committed crimes other than piracy, murder or treason. The price of a lottery ticket was high, so only the rich could afford it. Unless, of course, you got together with a few of your friends and got a ticket between you. And so, my friends, that is the end of the first episode of 2022. I hope you enjoyed it. But the real praise goes to those who bring the story to life. And today we had Andrea Reid, Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd, Henry Arnold and Max Berry from Bradley Stoke Radio, and Paul and Griff from the Paul and Griff Show podcast. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke Radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>